Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, ladies, and gentlemen of the jury to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, the Honorable Movie Judge, Aaron. All rise. Patrick, you're not rising. You shall rising. be hoid. <laughs> you're, not, you're not rising. Approach the bench, counselor, Sorry. right now. I object I object to rising. No, you can't object to the judge. What are you talking <laughs> about? That's not a thing. We've watched like eight lawyer movies in a row. You can't object That's to the true. judge. Has that ever happened? I haven't no. seen I ha- no, no, I haven't seen much courtroom, so I don't know the procedures, you know. It's, oh man, you know, what a burn. Oh. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go run and try to find a dead body somewhere in New Orleans. How about that? Okay. Are we okay That's with that? That's what John Grisham's really about. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm gonna write a brief about it. <laughs> and give it to a reporter. And pelicans. Okay. <laughs> find dead pelicans while I find the dead body. Why not? This week, we are finishing our run of John Grisham adapted movies with his most recent Runaway Jury, though it's been a minute since it was released. I believe this was 2003 when it came out. So there's not been, I don't think there's been a John Grisham adapted novel in the last 20 years, 19 years. Yeah, I think that I feel like that's a symptom of a bigger problem. And it's not necessarily that John Grisham hasn't wrote, written novels that might be worth adapting, but it is a lack of adult drama and adult thrillers in the way in they're just not theatrical anymore you know we get things like a gone girl very very occasionally but this type of movie just is not something that does super great anymore i maybe they'll make a comeback with the streaming platforms that would be nice he does have some books that are pretty good but uh yeah it's kind of kind of weird it's maybe it'll never happen again i don't know so maybe we were in a renaissance, and if we were, um, I will say just up front, this is a great way to finish that renaissance. I really enjoyed Runaway Jury quite a bit, but uh, let this be your spoiler warning um, with this all-star cast that lines the walls of this courtroom drama. We are going to be talking about it in detail, so feel free to come back and join us in this conversation and not feel like you're you know, getting spoiled because that's what we're doing for you. Anyway, here we go. First up, have you ever been summoned for jury duty, Aaron? And if so, did you ever serve on a jury? No. The answer is boring because it's no. I have never been summoned, and I'm going to knock on my desk because I don't really particularly want to be. I've only known a few people close to me who have been summoned, and uh, yeah, I, I've just never had that opportunity or experience whatsoever, and I don't know why, and I don't know if it'll ever come. Well, I have been summoned. In fact, I was called for jury duty several years ago, but mm-hmm. was in the midst of a project for work that I kind of, I'm the guy that wants to be on the jury. Like, I want to be part of something. I want to, you know sit in a hot room and eat sandwiches and complain about racial inequality and then say something stupid where somebody gets mad at me. You know, it just, I, I wanted the 12 angry men experience, never got it. I was summoned again and actually, actually sat in the courtroom during the, I guess, interview process. So this is something interesting that I learned. 
you actually get summoned and you're in a pool of jurors. And so it's a two-part cocktail. You either call each week for like six weeks straight and you're either not summoned or you're summoned, but you're not guaranteed a spot on the jury. So it's essentially like going to an interview, but being sort of on the wait list of like, are you going to be interviewed this week? No, you're not. Are you going to be interviewed this week? No, you're not. Are you going to be interviewed this week? Yes. Oh, but you didn't get this job. And then you have to you have to basically call in for almost, I think, eight weeks, six to eight weeks. And if you don't get called, then you're essentially off until, you know, whatever the statute of limitations is. And I remember being in the courtroom. I only had to, I only got summoned once. So when I got summoned, I didn't get picked. Darn. But the mur the murder, the trial wasn't as glamorous as something like a, like a like a murder. They didn't have to sequester the jury. I don't think. I think it was like a a two day trial, and I think it was like a robbery or something like that. But it was really interesting because you got to watch the jurors get selected and then get asked and go through the whole spiel with being on the panel, being asked questions, and then the lawyers agreeing to either keep you or dismiss you for whatever reason. There was never any kind of public speech that said, I dismiss you because of this. They would go up to the they would go up to the judge and they would say, Dismiss your honor and they say, reason why? And they'd go up and they kind of talk to him in private and they'd say, Okay, you're dismissed. And it took probably about three hours for them to actually get to a panel of twelve and two alternates. Really interesting. Felt a little cheated because I didn't get picked, and then I never got called again. So I was sort of teased quite a bit, and I, I kind of hold uh, the law in contempt for not letting me serve on the jury. I still hope that is the case at some point. Maybe I'll be a crotchety old man by then when I get summoned, and it'll be some kind, kind of like capital murder that I'll have to come on and say, "You don't own me, son," you know, whatever. But I, I just find it fascinating because the idea of being on a jury of your peers is just like this melting pot of rules and regs and stuff that just kind of, they're fascinating to me. And so watching Runaway Jury yeah. was such a great, refreshing way to end the Grisham verse, not only because it was courtroom drama like we wanted and really on steroids. This was, as you uh -huh. mentioned, offline, the most courtroom drama that we've had. Combined. between <laughs> Yeah, combined. It was just massive. But the tone of it really was consistent with the other movies, and I felt like it really balanced the idea of thriller and courtroom drama in a way that I don't think of the other movies did. Now, something like a Pelican Brief was more thriller, and I don't think it really kind of billed itself as courtroom drama. In the same way, I don't think The Rainmaker, even if it didn't have a lot of courtroom drama, it was more of that and less of the thriller, if any. So this one, I think, is probably the sweet spot for John Grisham for me in terms of if you're going to try to do both, this is the way to do it. And I think it really has to do with the fact that these movies have matured. It doesn't surprise me that this wasn't like the first one, that it was one of the later ones. If not, the, it was the last one. You had a cast of people that could really sell the characters. You had a director in the chair that could do what he needed to do and you had a story that was really compelling and somewhat balanced in its realism and its hyper-realism. So it made me ask a lot of questions. And one of the things I, I came out of this movie asking, and I wanted to kind of ask a question to you, is does a movie like this make you think about jury selection differently after watching it? 
in particular, like the pre-selection methods, like video surveillance and situational analysis? I really enjoyed it too. First of all, I think this is in my top three overall for his adaptations. And I think we really got lucky with this being the last one. I love ending his run of movies on a high. Obviously, next week we're going to talk about A Few Good Men. So there's it's unquestionable <laughs> that that is going to be a phenomenal conversation because the movie is excellent. And so this is a real nice surprise. I had not remembered much about this until I popped it back in. And once it started with that opening scene, which to me is so memorable, but yet I had forgotten it. Once it was going, and as soon as I saw Dylan McDermott, I remembered, oh yeah, this is that movie that tricks me and makes me think that Dylan McDermott is going to be a next John Grisham lawyer, but he's not. He's a stockbroker. And oh my God, he's dead, right? Like in five minutes. It's a really cool way to kick this off because it messes with your expectations right away. And I, I like that. But to your point about the jury selection, I loved seeing that process. Just like you described it was, it was excellent description there because I don't, think we often get to see this part in movies. Usually we will see a jury already having been selected. There may be moments or scenes of a jury in a film where they'll cut to a lawyer talking to the jury, but it's always about the lawyers or about who's on the stand. It's never about the jury members itself, except for to obviously 12 angry men being a, a major exception to that. And so I don't know that I was fully aware before ever seeing this movie for the first time that this is how the process happened, that you can be you know, approved, disapproved, selected, not selected for whatever reason. I knew that you could opt out of jury duty or, or request to be reconsidered at a later date or whatever due to personal inconvenience or your job usually is the thing you would put in as your reasoning. But I certainly didn't know that this is how it played out with regards to the jury selection. Uh, even on big trials, like famous TV uh, televised, I should say, trials for actual crimes, when they talk about jury selection, this part of the process was unbeknownst to me. And I think that it, it you're also spot on when you call it a very intriguing blend of realism and hyperrealism. Almost nothing that happens in the first three quarters of this movie to me feels at all unrealistic. I 100% believe this could occur. And whether that's pessimism or cynicism, just due to my view of the world, I don't know, is not a lot of faith in the justice system fully. And I just believe that this is a very normally realistic type of thing that humans would do because it's all about winning and it's all about getting the way that you want. And especially when it comes to a major corporation facing a case like this one that could set an enormous precedent. Like this is not just another trial. This is expressed to us very early on that this is a case that absolutely could change the course of history for these companies for you know forever and so it, it is a big big deal and it is the kind of thing that you might go this deep 
to try and secure the win for. So I, I think that it's probably, you know, a little played up because it's a movie. It's a little exaggerated, maybe, with the surveillance and the depth of it, but it's really entertaining. But I do think that there probably is at least some of this happening in the Google sphere at the very, like, smallest. Because, I mean, anybody can do that, right? Anybody can get the names and immediately start scouring social media profiles and trying to find information on people online. And I have no doubt at all that lawyers and, and legal teams would try to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's if it's public information, then it's fair game. And while I don't necessarily think that surveilling people and setting them up in social situations to get psychological profiles validated is necessarily the best way to go about doing it or legal, I do think the intent and the motivation is valid because the fact is when you choose a jury, you are obviously trying to pick a cast of people who are going to, at the very start, give you a leg up on the verdict. And so when Roar was talking about wanting to get a, I think, an older lady on the panel, or when Fitch was talking about wanting to get a bigger lady on the panel, there were valid reasons for that. And that's really what I thought the first part of this film was so brilliant at doing. It's not just the methods. The methods were cool, and it felt a little Mission Impossible-esque with the you know the quick stills of the you know the black and white photos and stuff i mean it it definitely felt like a an energetic way to secure a jury panel and the 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 contrast of these two people i think fitch's character and what gene hackman does so well it's done to a point where i actually forget that bruce davidson is the actual lawyer this is what makes it hilarious for me to watch is how powerful Fitch is that when I think about comparing the two, I compare Fitch and Roar's te their technique. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yes. <laughs> where it on paper should be Cable, you know, Derwood yeah. Cable and Wendell Roar. So when you watch how these two help select the jury panel, one does it by instinct. And it's funny to see Jeremy Piven sort of in the Fitch role but he's not very good i mean he's just there to help out but roar clearly has the power it's completely backwards in the other relationship but just seeing the methods by which both of these guys are able to get their people that whole sequence where you have this overlay of audio of dialogue you know we accept this one or object or we accept and it really does create a sense of a chess match where you're like i want to make sure that we get at least these three when they're selected. And if we can't get these three, then get this one. So when Nick is selected, Fitch is quick to say, um, so-and-so, I can't remember the character's name. He said, so-and-so sandbag, just go ahead and take him. And it, it's just this, it, it's like this, it's a game that you're playing. It's a fantasy it's a game draft. It's like a sports it really fantasy is. draft. That's a great <laughs> example, Aaron. I mean, that's a great yeah. analogy. It really is. Like in the first round of the yeah, jury exactly. selection, Fitch takes because you're taking them for for character traits. You're taking them for tendencies. And yep. then you add this third layer of this inside man of Nick and his counterpart Marley, who are gonna play the system. I had never seen this. I thought I remember seeing oh, it. Good. I remember Son. wanting to see it. Because I was a, I'm a huge John Cusack fan. At one point in my life, people thought I looked like him. So I thought I'd just attach myself to him. But I love most of his movies. And I never got around to seeing this. 
And so I'm like 20 minutes into this movie and I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Cusack's going to just be the comedian and he's going to kind of like, what's going to happen here? And it turns out like he's a confidence man. He's an inside man in conjunction with this woman. And I don't know what their motive is. And they, by the end of the movie, obviously we find out, but it was so cool to have these three sets of teams set up and how they were actually going to try to manipulate the jury. Going back to what you said earlier, I believe this happens. I believe that because juries are subjective, juries will hear things and they'll make a case based off of that and they'll never be necessarily like judged by it after the verdict is in. I think they can absolutely be manipulated. In fact, I think it's hilarious. I've started rewatching The Practice, the uh, David E. Kelly courtroom drama, also starring Dylan McDermott as a lawyer, which I thought was hilarious. And what I find interesting in a lot of these TV shows and movies is you've got a lawyer that will say something or he'll make the witness say something that the other lawyer will say, objection, strike that from the record or whatever it is. And the judge will say to the jury, forget you heard that essentially. And I'm going, they can't forget they heard that. So having never been on a jury, you've, I, I'd have to believe that you've just biased my opinion because I've just heard this guy saying that dude killed his daughter, even though he's not on trial for that. Well, I've already got something in my head of like, should I convict him based off of that? My emotions are going to tell me that I am. And I think that plays a part in this whole movie as a, like a fourth layer of how the jury comes to this verdict, which I think obviously plays in Nick Easter's favor along with Marley. But I think it's just so fascinating that we see these three teams of people doing what they can to manipulate. And we've talked about this before that lawyer movies are all about, you know, lawyers are all about manipulating by stating mm -hmm. the facts, but doing it in a way that's going to sway a jury one way or the other. That's why opening and closing arguments are so fascinating because they're completely persuasive speeches. Yeah. You know, I'm going to ask you to think about this. We've Imagine already this. seen the evidence. Yeah. Yes. It's already been presented. <laughs> so, I almost wonder, is it even worth it to have a closing argument or is it even worth it to hear the evidence? Why don't you just hear the opening and closing arguments and then go in and you know make your, make your decision? Because in some ways, I feel like those are com conflicted. And I like that a movie like this sort of gives us all of the things that we've appreciated about these John Grisham stories, complete with some high energy, a little bit of hyper-realism, but really some great courtroom drama, some great speeches. And really some genuine motives from everybody concerned. And now we've added another component, which is this jury that has not been a part of these Christian stories. Yeah, no, I mean, all of that is spot on for you know my enjoyment of it. And you have such strong performances on all levels, even in the jury outside of Nick. You have someone like Cliff Curtis, who I think is a fantastic actor, you know, playing the Marine Gunny Sergeant Frank Herrera, who is put there because he's a military guy. So they know he's going to vote on the side of the guns, right? They're manipulated that. I also find it fascinating the psychological game you mentioned between Piven, Fitch, and unbeknownst to them, Easter. The way that he we weasels his way into the jury has always just amazed me because. I look at it on the surface and I'm like, okay, this jokester is up there asking the judge if he knows what the Madden challenge is, which I loved. 
there's no way they're going to keep him because he's being ridiculous, but he is manipulating the judge. He's playing on that, knows that in re- what's actually going to happen is he's going to try, they're going to try and quote, punish him for being a jokester. And so he is going into it with this ridiculous excuse, knowing that that's going to cause the judge to want to force him to be on the jury. And it's just so, so smart. I love that scene. And especially when you consider the one before it where he's with his friends and they're trying to talk about how to get him out of the jury duty. And one of them's like, well, you have to be registered to vote. We need to deregister you. <laughs> and I, I laughed out loud. And I was like, is that a thing? Can you just like deregister to vote? I don't even know if you can do that. Like other than, you know, get a felony. I don't know if you can intentionally deregister yourself. So once you... It's so cool to look look at it in hindsight, I think. Once it's revealed and you know that Nick is part of the game, to think back on those scenes and those moments and understand like, oh, all of this was intentional. And I got to enjoy that a lot the second time because I knew what was coming. Yeah. So watching that, it definitely feels like a different kind of Grisham structure in that we are getting a twist i don't think we've gotten a twist in any of his other adaptations they've been pretty straightforward we've gotten reveals which i think is common with a lot of his stories and surprises and in particular like with the rainmaker the evidence that shows up that gets him in the end very much a feel-good moment but this is the first time as i was watching this that i felt very different about a grisham story And it makes me wonder, not enough to read his books, because I just don't have that kind of time, but it does make me wonder the kind of variety that Grisham has in terms of the stories he tells, not just in the lawyer verse or in the law verse, but how he actually frames his stories. Because this this feels really fresh. This story could have been what I would call the traditional Grisham formula. You have the idealistic lawyer. He's not young. He's very seasoned. And the role of Dustin Hoffman, who I think is just, I love Dustin Hoffman in general. I think he's a fantastic actor. He's got such a, a range of of roles that I found very entertaining, even as far back as, as Tootsie and his role as you know Captain Hook in Hook. thought that was fantastic. So seeing him here as the sort of idealistic lawyer it felt a little different. And I liked that. I liked that it was sort of an indirect Grisham formula. Because throughout the movie, I knew who, quote, the bad guy was, but I didn't really know who the good guys were. Because when you think about it, if you're manipulating a jury, are you really a good guy? I mean, are you doing what's right by the law? I don't think so. And I think that's what makes this movie a little bit more powerful than some of his other ones, because you have a sense of cheering for a character or a series of characters, but you also have a little bit of conflict in that because of the way in which they're going about doing it. You have a hard time being fully invested. I think Hoffman's character as Wendell Rohr is probably the closest that we can get, but I think it's only because he doesn't take the money. It's only because he eventually says, no, I'm going to let the verdict speak for itself. Yeah. You're absolutely right. In the end, we can fully be on board with his character. But as it's going, it is conflicting. 
And I love how it's played because there's an awareness to him that's not slimy. It's not gross. It's tragic. That scene where he goes into the partner's office and he asks for the paycheck and they're like, what? What is this for? And he simply says, gentlemen, I've lost my footing in this trial. And, and of course, it's Dustin Hoffman. Like the way he delivers the line, this is this elevates these John Grisham movies for us above the overall filmmaking of them. Sometimes we've said it repeatedly. You get such outstanding actors in a lot of these roles. The way he delivered that line for me, it was crushing because then you're you're talking about this guy who really genuinely has these goals, but he has gotten so deep now into this twisty trying to win it at all costs. Not that it's fair because it's not fair. You're going up against somebody that is not playing fair and we understand that, but he has broken down his own idealism to the point where he wants to give in and it, it's crushing. And so when he comes back at the end and then finally says, you know what? I don't care if I lose, I lose, but I'm doing it the right way. I mean, I, it's, it's a cheer moment. Like I want to cheer for that. More than I have in some of the previous films with the great monologues at the end, simply because yeah. that's not a manipulative moment. That's just somebody like genuinely saying, I'm going to do it right. And if it costs us, it costs us. And it's nice to see right pay off. Well, and that was going to be a follow up question based off of what you were saying is what would the impact of that moment be if we found out that the jury had swung the other way and he had lost the case, would it feel as just as powerful to you that he made that decision? Oh, it would. Absolutely. Maybe more. <laughs> Honestly, it may be more because in the face of losing, knowing you lost to a, an unfair system, it, it, it would be hard. It would be you would f have empathy for the character, right? Because you would know that that he's having to go through this. But I, I would respect him like I said, just as much, if not more, for sticking to his guns, despite the fact that he lost. I mean, it wouldn't be a happy, it would not be a happy ending. It'd be disappointing and it'd be cynical as all get out, of course, which wouldn't make for a very fun movie in the end. But yeah, I definitely would respect Roar. And, and I would see it as a lot, in a lot of ways as a tragedy, because my guess is he'd probably lose his job. He'd probably be done, you know, and it's awful, but knowing that he held up his virtue would would make him much more impactful and praiseworthy in my eyes. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that too. I think he would end up probably in the same boat as the end of the Rainmaker where you have a character who won the case mm -hmm. but has this kind of hyper idealism that is the death of him and so he has to give up the practice what i find interesting is in that hypothetical if Roy had lost the case the same thing would have happened he probably would have quit being a lawyer been, been fired or quit because he would have become a little jaded or mistrusting of the law but i don't think he would have stopped being a law lover like i think he would have been a teacher i think he would have gone to a professorship and taken part in being an ethics class or something like that. And that's what I think is really appealing about his character is that he's not the prominent figure in this. Like for me, watching this movie, there really wasn't one person that stood out. Nick Easter obviously does because of his kind of personality, him and Marley. 
but there was really not the one guy or the one team of people. This wasn't like one lawyer versus another. I mean, this was idealism versus capitalism versus cynicism all sort of mixed in together, but it played so well that it kept me entertained. And the thing is, there was so much great stuff happening in the background, the way in which the jury was being manipulated. I love, for instance, how Nick gets the menu and tells Marley through the note that lunch is going to be at like one. And so she calls the restaurant and says, hey, the judge is going to be in session till like two, two thirty. Go ahead and delay the lunches. And it allows yeah. him the ability because he's like a likable guy. He's already built a rapport with certain people to get them over to the restaurant where the judge is and it convinces where the judge to talk the judge into yeah, lunch. Yeah, yeah. To create a setup visually for both lawyers, both Fitch and for for Roar to see and to make them both think that, oh my gosh, the jury is in the judge's pocket. And what are we going to do with this? And so they both think that they're already at a disadvantage. And when you combine that with the little note that they both got at the beginning of the trial, I mean, it's got them on edge. It's got them thinking, okay, what do we need to do? And it creates this active sort of plot now where you have both lawyers who are trying to win the case. They're trying to sway the persuade the jury. But you have over the course of the movie, you have both um Roar and Fitch separating from their subtle characteristics to a more definitive. And that's what I think is really fantastic is watching how Roar's character is challenged and he decides, you know, mid-movie that he wants to get the payoff, but then he has a change of heart because his morals, because his duty as a lawyer at, at, and as a human being is really what's on full display here whereas Fitch gets even more amped up and he's like, we've got to win this. We've got to win this. And what does he do? Well, he does what uh, Gene Hackman should do. And that's go to the Caymans or at least this time, (laughs) send money to the Caymans (laughs) and not die by the way. So I I think watching this, there's such a push of each of these characters to their natural extremes, which is hyper moral and hyper immoral based off the same challenge, which is, are you going to pay money to buy a verdict? And so watching how they sort of play themselves, how they play out, it's really neat to see those characters go from not really equals, but to see them just become more extreme versions of themselves for better or for worse. So it creates a more distinct kind of um, good guy, bad guy, or good guys, bad guys that makes the ending of the movie that much more appealing and happy for me. Yeah, I did de- de- definitely. And it, you know, I love that this is what the third time we've gotten Gene Hackman now in the film. And he's played three pretty different characters, but all on the sort of bad side, if you will. He's never been corrupt. Corrupt. Corrupt is a great word. He's never been the ideal lawyer or idealistic young lawyer because he's older. But this character is so similar to. Uh, Lithgow is not Lithgow, not the other guy. Uh, who's the other, the other John in, in the Rainmaker? Who's oh, the, um, he, he plays <laughs> Tomb Raider's dad, as I said. <laughs> yes, I can't remember. He, I 
Yeah. We are a running football team. It's that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Why can't I talk? Why am I spacing on his name? Keep going. I'm just going to babble until you Google it and tell me what his name is. And you're slow. But it, anyway, so it's him. John Voigt. Yeah. John Voigt. Okay, there we go. I always get John Lithgow and John Voigt confused. So John Voigt in that film and Gene Hackman in this film are so, so similar as these just dirty, dirty people trying to like manipulate and control everything. And I think Hackman plays this so brilliantly. It is interesting to me to watch him do surveillance as well because of one of the movies I actually revisited recently, Enemy of the State is another movie where he's like this under underground guy. He's gone off grid. He's a former CIA agent. And he like really is all about like surveilling things around him. And I, I almost tend to imagine that it's like another alternate version of that character who's found a way to make money and just gone totally corrupt and like just enchanted with the world. But to what you were saying earlier, so I love the Gene Hackman performance and I think he has such a gravitas to him that it's impossible not he has a magnetism it's impossible not to look at him and just completely buy everything about his character and what he's doing and see him as a formidable threat easter what i love about how he plays this role is well not well easter doesn't play the role <laughs> but what i love about how uh, the character handles himself is that when he's manipulating he is almost always leading people into making choices for themselves. And it's fascinating to watch because he doesn't do things like he didn't bring a bottle of liquor and ask someone to take a drink and then set them up. Right. He looks at the situations around him. He is able to read the room and he is able to then inject himself into things just like at the end when he's getting the verdict trying to manipulate not manipulate but trying to help get to the verdict he wants he doesn't get his way by yelling and screaming and forcing people to listen to him he gets other people talking or sees what other people are doing and kind of lets them make choices that ultimately gets them around to the decision he wants them to make or to the result, i.e. getting somebody kicked off the jury that he wants to occur. And I just think it's incredible. And it's really cool when you learn that he had this background in law and it makes you wonder, like he had this dream to be an attorney himself. How good would he have been? Or is that a skill that we want our lawyers to even have, right? It, it, you know, because would he have just turned out like another slimy lawyer who is manipulating the system and using his talents to completely get whatever verdict he wants, whether it's actual justice or not? But this skill yeah. he has is so unique. And I, I think it it's just really shown to us in, in a very entertaining and thorough way. Well, and I will answer that question just straight up. He would absolutely manipulate whatever he could to get the verdict he wants from the very beginning. Even if we know by the end of the movie that we agree with his motive because of what we find out, the fact is he's actively manipulating. And you're right. He's not forcing the hand of anyone. 
He's using observation. He's using psychology. He's looking at tendencies. This is the same thing that someone who plays cards at a poker table for uh, Texas Hold'em is doing. I mean, you have cards that you're dealt, and you cannot control those, but you control the man. You play the man, and that's exactly what's happening here. So if we go from fantasy football draft to now playing cards at the World Series of Poker, I think we've definitely got what lawyering is. It's the ability to choose the right people and then manipulate those people in a way that's going to get you the verdict that you need. And I I say that very flippantly, but the fact is, this is what lawyering is. This is what, because what you're doing is you're saying, this is the rule. Here's how far we can go to not break it as Mitch McDeer is advised in the firm. And I think all these movies have that thread of, did you go by the law? Did you follow the rules? Oh, you didn't? Okay, well, then you are at fault for this. And being able to find evidence that proves that, being able to persuade a jury on emotion is part of that. And I think that's what Grisham does here in his stories is he reminds us that the law is not pure. The law is not just about facts and figures. It's about precedents and things like that. Precedents, I think, are a really important thing. And we see that in the Rainmaker, that if it's been done once, it's now on the table. So stolen evidence. If it didn't happen before whatever that that the the Soto case or whatever it was, Armand Soto, they wouldn't have had a leg to stand on because that was their whole case. Here, you have the ability to choose the jury and you know either if you're Easter or if you're Roar or with if you're Fitch, your methods are going to be a way to allow the jury to lean your way. Now, it's your job as lawyers or as pickers or as the inside man to use your tactics to lean them one way or the other. But in some ways, I don't necessarily think that's something that we should be surprised at. Because if if we're not using real people, then, or if we're using real people, we should expect there should be some subjectivity. And if not, then let's just get robots to hear the facts and then make you know, make a make a make a call. Let's not even have human juries. Let's just have twelve AIs that are sitting on computer screens. They're hearing all the facts, they digest it, and then ten minutes later they come out with a verdict. I mean, we don't want that either because there is a human factor in there. And that's why we have opening and closing arguments. So to your point, what I think is great about what Nick does is he exposes tendencies in the jury and then plays those almost spontaneously because he doesn't know who's going to be on the jury. It's not like he had this grand plan of like, all right, if I get this kind of guy, I'm going to do this. Right. He has to and, work with what he's dealt with. Well, and it starts early when he chooses, um, who is it? It's the blind uh, guy. The disabled yeah, Gary guy. Bandman. Yeah. Who I always think is uncle Frank from, yeah. <laughs> from home alone, but he takes the, he takes the power out of, um, out of the military guy who would clearly be the dominant person in the room. But the way he does that is not is not in a selfish way. That's the thing that makes him great, is he actually establishes credibility. He said, hey, this guy appears to know a lot about the law, and he's you know he was the only one to push back with the judge. I think he would make a great foreman. And I love that... <laughs> 
this blind guy can't see a unanimous vote going towards him. I know. He's that like, was did I win? <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. And I think in real life, I'm watching this guy and I'm like, he sees everything as an actor. And so it's got to be hard to play a blind guy knowing that your eyes are just like looking up the whole time <laughs> and making sure that your eyes don't like inadvertently go somewhere. But I think it's that kind of stuff that started the ball rolling where then he realizes, oh, we've got a, we've got a drinker in here. So at some point, I've got a little strategy in the back of my head, and then he employs it by putting the what the the uh, the Carmex under his eyes, and then <laughs> accidentally gets her kicked off. Love this little piece of trivia: Lydia Dietz, the goth girl that gets on the the alternate that comes on the jury. Love the fact that, that sort of little hat tip to Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice, just not spelled the same, played by Winona Ryder, another goth girl. So little, yeah, little. Wow. Hey, yeah, I didn't discover that myself imdb told that to me and i'm not afraid to say that but i thought it was a still a really great piece of trivia it's but i think that really adds <laughs> yeah i know it's yeah why would it why would it be in a john christian movie unless know. the director just liked having a uh you know it was I guess, a middle yeah. film, but anywho the the fact is adding nick easter's character to this adding that third element really did amp up this courtroom drama because it added a third set of like, how is this going to go? And that leads us to that, what I would call the twist ending in finding out about the school shooting. Real quick, because this kind of is going to tie into that. But I, I just want to say the things that I don't like so much about this that hold it back slightly for me. I love Rachel Weiss as an actress, and I have generally enjoyed almost everything she's in. And I certainly don't hate her in this movie. There is an element of the outside. She does. I'm, it's hard for me to buy her. Okay. I, I see Hackman. I see his strengths as a powerful man who has all of this technology at his disposal. I see Nick Easter as an incredibly sly in the moment, able to read people, huge charisma. The character of Marley to me is the one that is a little bit of a weak link. Like from a plot standpoint, the fact that the character exists and is trying to play both sides. I get that. I just, man, I sometimes I, when I watch it, I'm just like, it's harder for me to buy her completely with the others. I feel like, and I, I know the movie's probably wanting that it wants her to come off probably as like this weakling who is able to get these guys to to eat out of her hands and like get them fighting over this thing that she is selling. But it, it's just, there's something about it that doesn't quite work for me. And then I don't particularly love that it devolves into a very tropey attack sequence and a couple of like chase scenes and stuff. Those are the moments where it's funny how we keep saying that about our John Grisham thrillers. Like we want them to just stick to the courtroom stuff. Can, Cause for a long period, you don't think anything like that's going to happen. And luckily it's really brief in this. It's not unrealistic at all that someone would get beaten up as a final attempt to get them to shut up. That it seems very realistic. It just feels almost a little out of like, I just kind of want to stick to the actual drama in the courtroom and the psychological aspect of it. And then the final statement, like we've talked about again, it's, Luckily, I feel like hopefully the decision has already been made, but that closing argument where they play the video of his final mo moment in the morning, I was, again, I'm like, with the emotional 
attempts at manipulation that have nothing to do with the facts of the case. Like it's the guy at a birthday party with his kids and has zero to do with the reality of whether or not the gun company should have had guns on the market or not. Like it's all about the effect, the, the result of what happened. Right. And it just, Oh, I don't know. It just kind of rubs me so wrong. Cause it, it's, it tugs on the heartstrings. Right. And it's, it's easy. And I just put myself, we've already talked about it, but it put, I put myself in the jury's shoes and no matter what I'm thinking at that moment, it's incredibly difficult for me to let my brain override my heart no matter because right. it's right there in my face and it's so powerful and and I think I'm maybe that's good that the movie does that and shows us how that works because I certainly am crying as a viewer and finding myself swayed by that. But if I was on that stand, I don't want that to happen. And I'm afraid that that would happen to me, honestly. Like I'm that kind of an emotional person and I feel like I would be a mark to be someone that would be easily pushed one way or another by something like that. And that's just not right. So anyway, it, it does give us that moment that is very similar to those monologues at the end of previous films, which mm -hmm. we've discussed before. Yeah. And I think that to your point, when we look at an ending like this, I think what it highlights is the fact that both of those things are in play and that for some jurors, as we see in something like 12 Angry Men or even in this, they're not swayed by emotion. In fact, I think in that last deliberation inside the jury room. I like that. I like the fact that several people were like, I don't care that there's a video. I think it was the the military guy that was like, it doesn't matter. He was saying exactly what you did. The facts don't speak to that. The issue is that you have somebody like Easter in there who knows how to pull. And here's the other thing, Aaron. I don't know if 12 Angry Men, if the premise forced them to have a 12 to nothing vote. But the beginning of this movie gave it some leniency in that they only had to have eight jurors that needed to vote one way or the other in order to secure a verdict. If this had been a 12 to nothing one, you wouldn't have gotten it because that guy was going to stand on his convictions the whole time. And the fact is, he may have stood on his convictions. He may not have been one of the 12. We don't find out. I don't think we don't find out who voted for the verdict or who voted against. But the fact is he was able to manipulate eight of them. And I kind of like that ambiguity because it makes me kind of go, all right, let me look back at these 12 individuals. And I know at least one of them voted <laughs> in favor of the prosecution. But what about the other seven? And which, more importantly, which four voted against? So I think that leaves us in a place where if a lot of the jury trials don't need a 12-0 conviction, I, I want to say emotional manipulation's on the table. It's a tactic and I think it's valid because you have the option to sway the majority of people, but that's not necessarily a thing that's going to be a deal breaker because at least four of them could go the other way. And then two votes later, you could be at a 6-6 tie and all you need to do is persuade two people. So in in my opinion, and not having seen really any real courtroom drama, I don't mind being manipulated emotionally. I think it's a valid tactic because, again, you're dealing with human beings on the stand or in the jury box, not robots. So if you can change their minds by showing a sappy video of a guy who was once alive and is now dead, and he has a son that's never going to know who his father is again, by all means do it because it's not off the table. It's not illegal. 
And apart from any other part of the courtroom tactics, it's completely valid. So go for it. Well, as the movie ends, there's this reveal. And Mm -hmm. we sort of alluded to it, this twist ending that I would call where Fitch was the lawyer on this school shooting that happened several years ago involving, I think it was Marley's sister. And in the verdict, the gun company of the shooters won the lawsuit. And so we find out the real motive behind Easter and Marley. And so in a sense, we could probably make the argument that the quote, good guys won because sure, we want people to pay for their wrongdoings, especially during a school shooting. And in this day and age, when school shootings feel more common than we we would like, I mean, no school shootings are great school shootings, but as someone who one of the, you know, flashbulb memories for me is Columbine. That's the one that I remember more distinctly back in, I think, 99. It makes me look at this ending and kind of cheer for it because I'm like, yes, don't just go after the guys that shot him. Go after the gun people. Um, When you look at this ending compared to other Grisham stories, does it feel consistent? Do you like it more? Does it feel more satisfying in terms of that? Because I know that this is very common for Grisham to kind of have a little bit of a thumbs up. The good guys won, even though there's some consequences here and there. Where does this sit for you? I absolutely love it because I think it would be completely inconsistent with John Grisham's novels and with the filmography that we have for it just to be three manipulating parties without a purpose other than winning. And so when the twist occurs, I think it really does bring it back home. And it helps to keep in perspective (laughs) when you're watching this, it's 20 years after this movie. And there is a line in the film where the, I think it's roar says, I believe in this case. I believe in a world without guns. And and I, I mean, I had to stop in my tracks for a second because I was like, man, we were talking about this and trying to, we were acknowledging it as an issue 20 years ago, even in our entertainment media and and here look at where we are today right it certainly has not gotten better and so for there to be such a a meaningful purpose behind it when you learned that the town had gone bankrupt and essentially that's where this money was going to go was to be back into the town to help prop up the economy after it failing i really liked that that being said I don't know that I am on the side of thinking from a a legal justice standpoint that this case is the fault of the gunmakers. <laughs> I kind of hesitate on that. So I like it from a moral high ground perspective. I think they're gross and I think that they have a responsibility like it's stated in the film, but it's hard for me to say I would personally find them negligent and guilty in these cases. I don't know. And I, but I think that by tying it into something that is bigger than just this one shooting, and that really makes you think about shootings more broadly as a whole, 
I really do think that that just ratchets it up a whole notch for me. And I liked it a lot, uh, personally. Yeah, I did too. And I think you're right. The consistency of it is what makes it good. In comparison to the other endings, I felt like it was one of the more satisfying ones because of the way in which it creates redemption cinematically from one thing to another. Because one of the things that stands out in the movie is how the gun companies have never, up to this point, have never been convicted. There have been lawsuits in this world, in this universe, where gun companies have been brought to trial for similar events and have been uh, have walked away with the verdict of not guilty. Gene Hackman's character, uh, Fitch, has this fantastic dialogue with these, I guess, these gun company owners. And I love his manipulative tactics. If we want to talk about manipulation, I love the way he manipulates because he's essentially trying to get a cash payment up front. He's basically saying, you guys want me to win this case? It's going to cost you, oh, 10 million? Really? You just want 10 million? Let me let me tell you about numbers here. And then he goes to this whole beef about 30,000. That's how many gun deaths have. <laughs> yeah. It's a great, great monologue to these guys. But he talks about the fact, he says, the most important number is one. All it takes is one conviction of your company and now you've set a whole precedent that word precedent is so powerful when it comes to lawmaking and trials because all you need is that one that says i've got a loophole i've got a way to do this and so when we find this thing happen we see it satisfying not only for roar because he's got his conviction he's got his win we also find it for eastern for marley because of the fact that now they don't want to keep the money. They're going to give it back to this town that's basically dead to try to revive it. And also that number one now becomes two and four and eight and 16 and it yep. will multiply. So in the Grisham verse, the gun companies don't exist in like 15 years because <laughs> every shooting that takes place can usually be tied back to a this gun case, company. Yeah. And, and now you have this case as a precedent. So yeah, I thought it was great. I will say I also like the fact that in the end, they aren't buying the jury. And while Nick does manipulate things throughout the course of the case, in my opinion, what I am led to believe is that the jury ultimately makes their decision and they rule based on their hearts and based on what they believe is real justice. And that's what Nick is getting out of them. And so I really appreciate that, is that he's almost... It's not like he's manipulating them to get them to the answer he wants. He's manipulating them to ensure that they are not biased by the other side and that they think for themselves and vote with a clear conscience how they truly believe without outside. He's, he's like trying to work as a force field against negative influence more than he is trying to influence them himself. And I, I think right. that, that helps really sell us on believing that okay it's an honest verdict and so no matter right. what side it comes down on we can get behind that because it's honest mm -hmm. yeah i absolutely agree with that great great point well that's going to do it for this edition of feeling film and while we are officially out of the grisham verse we stay with the law and as we officially mentioned as we mentioned it's a winner for us so you know the conversation will be fantastic join us as we bookend our it's the law series with tom cruise yet again in a few good men can we handle the truth? Well, we'll see. Can we Aaron, podcast from another... the wall? <laughs> if we can. From Gitmo. I love saying Gitmo. I feel you like need I'm... us on that wall. Anyway. <laughs> you want us on that 
Are we going to be just quoting the whole thing? Oh, yeah. Get ready. Okay. Absolutely. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. I'll try to get my, I'll try to get my uh, Nathan Jessup voice on if I can. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) All right. Well, Aaron, thank you for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.